Senior executives know that to stay on top of your game, you need to constantly challenge and develop yourself. IMI's new senior executive experience delivers future-focused learning. Gain invaluable tools and insights in areas like organisation resilience and digital transformation to shape the future of your organisation. Visit imi.ie for details. Hello and welcome everyone to another edition of the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. In a recent mini masterclass, Paula Mullen explored the importance of creating compassion and connection as a leader. Paula is an executive communications coach specializing in executive presence, and she also teaches for us here at IMI. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to talk to Paula a bit about some of the key concepts like dimensions of leadership presence in the context of becoming a more compassionate leader. So Paula, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us how you got interested in leadership? Yeah, great, Farah. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. And yeah, so as you said, I'm an executive and communications coach, and I've been working in this space for over 20 years. And I'm working with quite a range of amazing clients, you know, multinational organizations, Irish organizations. And really at the heart of what I do is I help leaders get clarity on how they engage with others. I help them understand the way in which people experience working with them. And then what we do is, in many ways, I support and coach them around making what I would describe as subtle behavioral changes that end up having quite a significant impact in terms of the, them getting the results that they want. So it's it, it's really fascinating work. And the, the work that I do is hugely rewarding. You know, there's always that lovely moment of seeing somebody really move into a place that they want to be in. And that's a, a very, um, as I said, rewarding experience. But I've always been interested, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, I've always been interested in people and behavior. And I started off, I studied psychology and sociology at Queen's University, Belfast. And back then I was particularly interested in communication and how people communicated, which then brought me into the world of communication. So I worked as a communications consultant for a long time, again, always working with a range of clients, a range of big organizations. And interestingly, back in, it was about 2005, the company that I was working with at the time, they were, they were kind of ahead of the game. They invested in executive coaching for their management and their leadership team of which I was a part of and I always remember that very first coaching session I had with this amazing coach who has sadly since passed away Fiona Fay. and in that session I was hooked I was amazed at her skill in asking me really insightful questions that got me thinking in a way I'd never thought of before and so from that moment I immersed myself in the world of coaching I you know in terms of studying it getting to know the people in the industry and really wanting to make it my world and then just as I was about to set up my own business in 2010 so 13 years ago now I had decided, well, I'm going to remove myself from communications. That's what I used to do. And I'm going to divorce myself of that. Luckily, I had a really amazing mentor at the time. And he challenged me on that. And he encouraged me to see the, the space between coaching and communications and how the two could blend together. And in many ways, far it's what's brought me to the conversation that we're having today around leadership presence and executive presence. So I'm very grateful to that um, to that mentor at that time, because in many ways, I think I've created quite a unique space within 
what can be a very busy coaching world. Um, and that's what I do with the clients that I work with today. Thanks very much, Paula. It's great to get that context and hear about how coaching kind of enabled you to become a coach down the line. So thank you so much for that. I want to talk a bit about your mini masterclass with us. So the main focus of that was on leadership presence. And we'll go into some of the key facets of leadership presence in a little while. But for anyone who might not have attended the event, can you give us a quick overview of what exactly leadership presence is? Yep. Yeah, this leadership presence and also known as executive presence can be what a lot of people would describe as very, it's intangible. How do we grasp it? How do we really um, understand it? And for many years, I couldn't myself. And I felt like I need to go and learn from the experts who had carried out all of the research to be able to define what leadership presence is. And I train with and study with a company based in Boston, Bates Communications. They're a BTS company now, and this is how they define it. So if we actually just take a moment to think about how they define it, they say it's a leader's ability as seen through the eyes of others that engage, inspire, align, and move people to act. So there's a couple of things in that fire, you know, because when we give a definition, sometimes like they can feel hard to grasp, but as seen through the eyes of others. And what I find is when it comes to leadership presence and executive presence, a leader may think and intend to meet with people in a certain way, but how are they been experienced by others? That's the that's the presence piece. You know, what does that feel like for other people in their company? And then if you break down the engage, you know, particularly in this world now in which we work, where, you know, even already this morning, I've had a hybrid meeting, you know, so people were in person, number of us were online. How can you ensure that everybody in this entirely new way of working is engaged, that they're all bought in? Are they aligned? Does everybody know what, what they're working on and what they need to achieve? Then this idea of leaders being inspiring. And, you know, very often we associate being inspirational as being something much bigger than it is. But to be inspiring is to be a role model to people and then to move people to act. So, you know, leadership is about really ensuring that people deliver the results and that they do so in a collaborative way. So this definition helps leaders make sense of what we're talking about when we say presence. And then if I go one step further, for those that didn't attend the masterclass, the model then breaks it down into three dimensions of leadership presence, character, substance, and style. And so character are all the things that build trust with between a leader and the people around them. So they are things like the level of authenticity, concern, humility, some of the things that we'll speak about today. Substance then is all about credibility. Do people know what they're talking about? Do they have the insights? Do they have the market knowledge? Do they have the experience and the depth of experience to make decisions? And then style is how do you go about generating action? How do we go about making sure that things happen? And that looks at things like how assertive is the leader, but also how inclusive is that leader? And the brilliant thing about this tool, and the reason why I find it so valuable when I coach clients, it provides them with really tangible, specific behavioral changes. It helps them learn what they're doing really, really well in a very specific way. And it invites them to learn as to how they can improve. So does that answer, does that give a high level um, understanding of what leadership presence is? Absolutely. Yes, it does. Thank you so much for that. And I think now that we have that overall understanding, we can dive a little bit deeper into some of those key facets. So 
The one you mentioned that really drives character is humility. And now I'm sure we can all think of a leader who might not exactly embody humility. In other words, someone who doesn't like to admit that they don't have all the answers. And it's probably quite easy to fall into that trap as a leader. So what makes humility so important in leadership? And can you give some examples of what that looks like? Yeah, it's interesting that you did say that it's so easy for people to fall into the trap because actually so many people feel the need to have all of the answers. And there's a nervousness almost in admitting that they don't have all of the answers. But the reason why humility is so important and anybody listening to this and thinking about themselves and the organization with which they work in, if it matters to them that they develop people around them, that they develop talent, then demonstrating humility as a leader is critically important because in doing so, you allow others to shine. You might have the answers. You might have an approach that you think will work, but actually inviting other people to let to let them shine and let them give their perspectives really um, helps them develop as people. And so that's one of the reasons. The other reason is, you know, innovation. We talk so much about innovation and creativity in organizations. In order for innovation to be fostered, for it to be experienced, leaders have to take that step back and invite different ways of doing things. You know, and I find that amazing in some of the companies that I work with, whereby, you know, there might be a leader that has had a very typical way of approaching something they've been doing it for many many years and somebody new comes along and there's always that initial tension that fear of letting go of trying it out in a different way but what they recognize is that there are so many different approaches that can get even better results and then again when I think about humility and why it's important if people are listening to this and thinking do we want to create a culture of growth and learning in our organization and again, they need leaders to be to demonstrate that humility. And, you know, in thinking about it, so many of the leaders that I work with, they would describe themselves as being humble, you know, as people. And then sometimes they get the insights from the XPI report, the 360 assessment. And they realize that a lot of the times when they're showing up to the people around them, they're not necessarily demonstrating that level of humility. And that can be really, that could be unnerving actually for some people to hear and actually disappointing for some people to hear. So, you know, what it looks like in, even as, as, as recent as the last few weeks, I debriefed a leader on humility, on, on the overall executive presence model. And, you know, this leader realized that they have a really strong action bias you know so they're really confident they can really deliver results but what was happening was they're not allowing enough space for others to provide their insights provide their answers and actually what people said was they were almost so impressed by the leader's confidence that it challenged them to speak or sorry it it didn't allow them to speak up you know because they felt threatened by it so what it looks like, and I mean, if we think of really poignant leaders um, that have existed in this lifetime, you know, you only have to think of the likes of Nelson Mandela and as being, you know, um, probably one of the most humble leaders, uh, leaders high in humility. And I actually came across a recently a lovely quote of his around humility. He says that humility is the most important quality which you must have, because if you make people realize that you are no threat to them then people will embrace you. And I thought that was lovely because it captures a lot of what this is about because 
this idea of not being a threat to so that client that I was speaking about, he was coming across as overconfident, over capable. And in many ways, people felt threatened by that and weren't willing to maybe admit when they didn't know something or weren't willing to maybe give things a go. So humility is one of the key facets in building trust with people. And I think it's something that can be overlooked. And I think for a lot of people, there's a fear of if they're too high on humility, they won't seem confident enough when in fact the reverse is true. The most confident leaders are willing to let their guard down and, and share, you know, where, where they have areas to develop. Thanks very much, Paula. And I guess it's easy enough to say, you know, show people your strengths and weaknesses and show people the areas where you can improve as a leader. But how can leaders actually do that? How can they go ahead and really put their strengths and weaknesses on display for their teams to, I guess, help the teams improve their own confidence and understand that the leader might not be the person who has all the answers. Yeah. Yeah. How do they go about doing it? And I think the starting point Farah, has to be around, do they know what those strengths and weaknesses are or those strengths, or I would say even development areas are. I love to switch the word weaknesses into development areas. So starting point for any leader, and that's why any kind of 360 assessment or an assessment like this helps them understand that. Because very often what I find is a lot of leaders take for granted what their strengths are or they undervalue them. They assume that everybody has that. So a big part of a process like this is not all about what we need to improve upon. I get people to really sit in the awareness of where, where they're strong and, you know, working with a client recently and she, she scored very high in what's called practical wisdom. So she's amazing insights and depth of knowledge in her area of expertise. And for her to even recognize that she has a place to, to showcase that, to demonstrate that, and she does that brilliantly and gets the results that she wants. Um, but if we overplay any of those strengths, it becomes a problem. And in her case, like the previous client, she wasn't given enough space to other people or she was moving at too fast of a pace for the other people to catch up with her. The, for leaders to actually share their, their development areas, you know, I think a lovely example of this is, I'm sure you've come across the fact that Richard Branson speaks, he speaks very publicly and he advocates um, for the place of dyslexia in the workplace. And, you know, he as 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 it absolutely is describes it as a superpower that he believes that he has and anybody who has dyslexia knows and now finally I think we're changing that conversation around what dyslexia is and you know so it's his creativity his innovation his empathy and his ability to connect but he also would have spoke about the fact that there are challenges with it and he said it was nearly and it was in his early 50s before he could grasp some relatively simple financial concepts like the difference between gross and net profit and but he is an example of a leader that is confident enough to know that that it's okay to not have all of those things so when we come back to how can people show you know it's a first of all it starts with having enough confidence to be willing to acknowledge and be vulnerable about the things that you're not as strong at. And that's the beauty of when teams come together. You know, when you look at some really high performing teams, 
they work with this beautiful blend between people's strengths and development areas. They lean on other people, you know, that are particularly good at something. Um, and and they, they, they seek insight or guidance from them on, on areas that they struggle with. So I think the starting point for it, actually, as we describe it, is around getting that foundation of confidence. And anybody who's worked with me, they've heard me say that so many times because I believe it's fundamental when it comes to leadership presence. And I do a lot of behind the scenes work with leaders in building that confidence to then be willing to celebrate their strengths and to be willing to be open about the areas that they could develop even further. Thanks very much, Paula. It's interesting and perhaps a bit counterintuitive to hear about how confidence and humility really go hand in hand. So I think there's some really practical takeaways that our listeners can go off and implement for their own leadership presence. And I want to move on to the next passage that you talked about during the masterclass, and that was concern. So can you tell us a bit about how leaders can demonstrate concern? And on the other hand, how they can also treat themselves with concern? Yeah, yeah. And it's probably an area that's I think one of the more misunderstood facets of this model, and I, you know, we even saw that in the masterclass when I asked the group about their beliefs weren't what concern meant. You know, a lot of them captured um, key um, behaviors with concern. So if we break it down into three areas, you know, the, the first area of a leader who's high in concern, first, they all have got to know the people that they're working with, be it direct reports, peers senior stakeholders that they work with. So they'll have got to know them. They'll have show, they'll show them that they matter to them. You know, so very simply that lovely, that human connection. And, you know, I heard a client not that long ago speak about somebody on their team who'd been really, really sick. And I heard this depth of concern that this leader showed to this individual. They tuned into their needs. They were there for them. They were able to demonstrate support. So that's one, that's that simple act of caring for the people around you the second um, the second part of it is much more around demonstrating concern by really listening to people and I'm amazed a lot of the time as to why people don't listen to each other so many people find themselves in roles now and organizations that are moving at such a fast pace that they become very transactional and people don't take the time to properly listen to each other and to listen to the insights, to listen to the experiences, to listen to the challenges. So a leader that is high in demonstrating concern, they it's this idea of people feel listened to and leave feeling heard. You know, it's one thing to listen and it's another thing to ensure people leave feeling heard. So caring for people listening to them. But then the third one, and this is the bit that I think gets overlooked. Leaders that are high in concern are excellent at developing the people around them. So what I mean by that is they will offer them opportunities, new opportunities to take on different tasks, to try things out. They'll show a belief in them, the belief beyond the belief that the individual might have themselves. But then the other part of it is the need to have feedback conversations. So showing concern to people is letting people know what they do well and what would make that even better. And what I find is a lot of individuals are crying out for that feedback. They want to have that conversation. And yet too many leaders are nervous about the impact of having that conversation. And, you know, Brenny Brown talks about that. There's a lovely quote from Brenny Brown. Clear is kind, 
unclear is unkind. So if you consider yourself to be a leader that is compassionate and high on concern, then if you're serious about that, part of that process is being willing to have a conversation with people around areas that they could develop in. And, you know, uh, this morning I worked with a, a group of people and this really came up in, in a big group discussion. They are kind, caring individuals that really want to show concern, but they are not telling people enough. They're not having those conversations and they're too afraid to have those conversations. But actually, if we're looking at building trust, building connection, it's in those moments that those those relationships deepen and and really become a lot stronger. And this brings me into a whole other area of this world of what's called self-compassion. And really, I became particularly interested this in this in the height of COVID because I was coaching an awful lot of senior leaders at the time, like everybody in the world in their own way that was was struggling through this absolutely unprecedented times that people were experiencing. And I started to study and invest myself and trained in this area of self-compassion. And it's a highly researched area. There's a lady, Kristen Neff, that leads the research in this area. But to me, it has been quite simply a game changer with the clients that I work with. And so what it is about, and you say you've shown concern for your, themselves, Self-compassion for leaders is asking leaders to, first of all, acknowledge when things are hard. And there's so much talk about resilience and getting on with things that people think that that's, that's not an approach that will serve them. They're afraid of if they acknowledge how hard it is, that'll make it harder. When in fact, all the research shows that by acknowledging and admitting when something's hard, it serves them. The second part of self-compassion is recognizing that you're not alone. And I love that even with that group session this morning, there's that moment where people realize that it's not just them experiencing the same emotions or the same challenges or the same hopes and desires. So this lovely idea of this common humanity. But then the third part of self-compassion is, you know, a lot of the leaders that I work with, if I ask them to advise a good friend, to speak to a good friend about whatever it is that the, the the challenge might be. They will speak kindly. They will offer words of reassurance. They'll offer words of encouragement. And yet when they speak to themselves, the voice sounds very different. They're incredibly tough on themselves. So I coach clients and help them get a grasp of what it means to offer that voice to themselves. And we use, you know, there's both the informal practice of self-compassion which is noticing that voice. And then there's the formal practice of self-compassion, you know, which brings in a practice of mindfulness, a practice of really working through exercises that allow leaders to relate to themselves in a much more powerful way. And all the research shows leaders that practice self-compassion are more emotionally intelligent, they are more resilient, and they are more compassionate for the people around them. So it's an area, there's a wonderful um, HBR article that captures a lot of this um, that I would encourage anybody listening if this resonates to, to have a look for that article and you'll you'll get a huge amount from it. I think it's so interesting to hear about self-compassion because as a busy leader with a team to prioritize, self-compassion might be one of the last things on your list, but it's so important to do that. And now relating to the conversation about concern, you showed us really interesting graph during your masterclass, 
where the kind of optimum state that you want to get to as a leader is radical candor, as opposed to some of the other combinations on this graph. So obnoxious aggression, manipulative insincerity, and ruinous empathy. And I'll put that graph onto our website page so people can see what I'm talking about. But can you talk us through that idea of radical candor? Yeah, yeah, I will indeed. And that model that you're describing um, was designed and created by a lady called Kim Scott, who was a former executive with Google. And she tells a story about how she worked with um, Sheryl Sandberg at the time at an earlier point in her career. And she gives this lovely story of a time when she'd gone in to deliver a presentation to other Google executives. And apparently the presentation went really well and she was really happy with it. And after Sheryl Sandberg spoke to her about it and said, you know, how did you feel that went? And she was happy. And Sheryl Sandberg said to her at a Several times during that presentation, you kept using the word um, um, in between. And Kim Scott acknowledges that she did not think that was of any relevance or it didn't, didn't really matter. And she wasn't hearing the message that Cheryl was trying to tell her until Cheryl said to her, every time you say um in between sentences, it makes you come across not as credible as you actually are or as you are. And so Kim Scott that was a moment in time when she realized she knew that Cheryl Sandberg cared about her enough to challenge her directly. So the grid that you're describing, if you can imagine a quadrant and on the vertical axis, it has care personally. And on the horizontal axis, it has challenge directly. So if we think about that moment between Cheryl and Kim, she cared about her, but she was willing to challenge her when, and she was going to ultimately help her become a much more impactful presenter by giving her that feedback. And the whole intention is to encourage leaders to move into a space where they're willing to have those tough conversations. And leaders that are high on concern know that that's part of their responsibility. That's part of their job. But unfortunately, a pattern that a lot of companies that I work with fall into is what's on the left-hand side, which is called ruinous empathy. So ruinous empathy is when you care personally, but you do not challenge directly. And too much time is wasted in organizations because of this ruinous empathy. So these patterns of, you know, people continually just saying oh things are fine yeah yeah that's grand yeah you know you're doing really well and not having the conversations that'll help the individuals develop and help get better results you know if you look at Netflix as uh, you know the lot, remember a number of years ago they released a lot of information about their style of of having a feedback culture and what you'll hear a lot of leaders in Netflix talk about is the fact that they they know that by having those honest, radical, candid conversations that they will be much more effective and working together. So the other two quadrants you really don't want to fall into, but they happen a lot, um, unfortunately. And on the right hand side, it's obnoxious aggression, as you've said, Farah. And obnoxious aggression is when you challenge directly, but you do not care personally. And when we see this and when we see people on the receiving end of this, it can be really unnerving for people or it can be really upsetting for people. You know, I remember years ago hearing um, a piece about research and it talks about the fact that how, the sorry, how a person receives feedback is entirely dependent on the intention of the person giving it. 
So if you think about that for a moment, how a person receives feedback is entirely dependent on the intention of the person giving it. So if we think about down this quadrant of noxious aggression, if the person is giving the feedback and they, they're challenging, but they, the individual knows they don't actually care about them, that can be quite devastating. And I hear, you know, I, we bring up this, this model a lot, you know, when I work with larger groups. And during that time, I will regularly have somebody in a group reveal a story that might go back to 15 years ago when they received feedback in this obnoxious, aggress- aggressive way. And they still to this day remember the emotional sensations that they felt at the time. It had a really serious effect on people. And I think that in some ways holds people back. They're terrified of doing that to people. But if you follow this, this model of I'm going to show the person I care and I'm going to challenge them directly, then you're going to stay in that safe place of radical candor. Manipulative insincerity. Sadly, it exists in too many places. That's where things like backstabbing, political behavior, it's where people are not caring personally and they're not challenging directly. And they're having many, many conversations about colleagues, but they're having them in the wrong forum. They're having them in the wrong place. And that can lead to to real undertone of an unhealthy um, culture within an organization. So I think what this framework does is, if any of the listeners are are going to have a look at it. It's it's not to place people within the, the, the framework, but it's to recognize what needs to happen for them as individuals or for their teams to be willing to move into this place of radical candor. Thanks very much, Paula. I think that's really key to keep in mind when you're giving feedback to someone, what the intention is, and to keep that in mind that whatever your intention is will determine how the person takes that feedback and how they'll feel about it. So really interesting there. Thank you so much for sharing. And now we come to the final facet that we're going to speak about today, and that's resonance. And I think that concepts like humility and concern are a bit easier for people to understand because they're just talked about a lot more often. But when it comes to resonance, what exactly is a resonant leader? Yeah, you're right. It's not a word that, and even I remember when I first trained and studied in this model, it certainly wasn't a term that I was as familiar with. And I'm going to borrow the words of, I don't know if you've heard of um, Richard Boyatzis, who's a really, you know, a wonderful leader in this space and renowned coach. And he, the way he describes it is, if you think about a resonant leader, he would say, when somebody leaves your room if you have a meeting with them or leaves the office or a team's call or a zoom call or whatever it might be when they leave that conversation do they leave that conversation feeling more energized more engaged more inspired because if they do not feel some of those things when they leave a conversation with you then you are not being a resonant leader so if we think about what that means resonant leaders or leaders that demonstrate resonance, they have that ability to, first of all, at a very simple level, be really present with the people they are speaking with. And unfortunately, too many leaders and in this world that we live in with continuous distractions, busy minds, technology grabbing their attention, them trying to be in more than one place at the one time, 
they're not as present as they could be. And we all know what it feels like to speak to somebody and know that they're not really there for us. So resonant leaders are present and engaged. Resonant leaders tune in to the emotional needs of the person in front of them. And I'm not talking about leaders here needing to be psychotherapists or psychologists or anything like it, but they do things like they pay attention to the nonverbal cues of the person in front of them. And some of the leaders that I would see that I've coached over the years that are really high on leadership presence, they are so skilled at doing this. They have that ability to read a room, to notice the room. And again, part of that goes back to what we spoke about earlier, Farah. They have a foundation of confidence, so they're relaxed in themselves. And that gives them the freedom to look around the room. And they're not thinking about themselves all of the time they're noticing how is that message landing with that person what's happening in this room you know so and in doing so resonant leaders help others clarify their thoughts so if we think about what that means you know and I think about a client that that I'm coaching at the moment and for him he doesn't he has recognized and he has got the feedback and resonance is one of his lower facets that because he wants to achieve a lot and because the role is very busy, a lot of his interactions with people are really transactional. And so he has recognized that he's not given people a chance to voice and to, to, to think things through themselves. And I know there may be leaders listening to this thinking, yeah, Paula, that all sounds lovely if I, uh, you know, but I'm under pressure time-wise and I don't have all of the time in the world to have these big, deep kind of coaching moments, but they're coaching moments. I'm, I often notice how, you know, certain leaders I work with, interaction that might've taken two minutes, if they extend that out by even five to six minutes where they quieten things down and they ask a really insightful question, they achieve a lot more out of it they the the person gets a lot more from it so we're not talking about big extensive amounts of time it's more about a way of being with people and that's a choice and going back to your question earlier about strengths and development areas you know there might be some people listening to this and they feel like they are naturally very good at this and this is the way that they work and that's brilliant to keep building on that but there might be some people listening to this thinking yeah I'm I'm too busy I'm in too much of a rush and that's a choice you know some of the leaders that I work with really take the time to get clear on their priorities and if for example building a team and getting a team to really operate at their best then resonance is a really essential quality of being a leader that's going to build a team like that. Well, thank you so much. I think this is such an interesting topic and we could probably talk all day about these different characteristics and these different facets of leadership presence. So thank you so much for joining us today on the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. And thank you to everyone for listening. You can subscribe on SoundCloud or on your preferred podcast provider to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Until next time.